first reading this morning is a reading from Ezekiel. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord. A reading from Luke. That very day, the two of them were going to the village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things that had just happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered uh, him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was one of, the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things had happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter his, into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose at the same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. They told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the gospel of the Lord. Almighty Father, uh, we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would do in us uh, the same thing that you were doing in the lives of these two people that were walking to Emmaus. Um, uh, work within us. Uh, do that, give, give that, that clarity about Jesus Christ uh, that these two people walking to Emmaus couldn't generate themselves, but that you imparted as a gift. And so we ask you to intervene in all the ways necessary 
intervene in our lives that we may know Jesus Christ ever more closely. We ask this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> and um, it, it's, uh, it, it's, it continues to be Easter, um, as Josh said at the beginning, and so I do not apologize if I say Christ has risen from the dead, trampling down death by death. And to those within the tomb, he is restoring life. Alleluia, Christ is risen. Alleluia. 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 You're much better at that than you used to be. So well done. I just want you to be encouraged. Um, okay, so we're beginning a new series today. We're going to be following this series pretty much through the uh, season of Easter. Uh, and what we're doing is we're going to look at that gospel reading we just had read. And uh, we're just going to sit with it for a little bit. There's a number of reasons why we're going to do that. One is that it is just rich. It's a rich story. Uh, we looked at it one week last week, but that's, just, that's not enough. So we're going to look at it a number of weeks this week. And um, what happens in this story, it, it's a story that happens on the day of Easter, later on, uh, perhaps in the, after, well, in the afternoon, on the first day that Jesus rose from the dead. And it's a story of uh, two people, uh, two followers of Jesus, who are deeply disillusioned. They are ready to give up. They are hurt, and it's important to say, they have plausible reason to think that this whole following Jesus thing uh, is a failure. That's where we meet them in the beginning. However, despite that, we see Jesus risen from the dead, prioritizing, chasing them down. He clearly spent hours of the day chasing them down, addressing in conversation their difficulties, when, precisely when they don't even recognize who he is. And by the end, what we find are two disciples who are empowered and renewed and joyful in mission. It's a remarkable story of transformation. And so we're going to look at this story in part, basically, because when I read this story, I find myself saying, Lord, will you do in me what it is that you did in them? Will you do in our church what it is that you did in them? Whatever you accomplished in them, I want that in us so that we would be a people not merely who are in the religious stuff, but people who are transformed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to taste it like honey. Um, and so here's, here's the way we're going to do that. Um, as I said, these are two disciples who are deeply disillusioned, really struggling. And many of their struggles are struggles that we have as well. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the different uh, difficulties, struggles, disillusionments, and objections that made these people ready to give up on Jesus. We're going to look at some of them over the next few weeks. And some of them we're going to be able to identify with. And today, uh, the kind of difficulty we're going to focus in on is that these two people had good reason to just give up on religion generally. They just had good reason to give up on religion. Religion is a failure in their experience. And so we're going to look at that. And we're going to watch how it is that Jesus addresses that concern about just disillusionment with religion. Now, some of us will be able to immediately identify with that difficulty objection uh, struggle. Others, but, but even if you can't, even if you're not disillusioned with religion, um, you, you know a lot of people that are. So let's look at these two people, enter into their trauma, and then watch how Jesus, largely through his resurrection, addresses that concern. Does that sound all right? 
Great. Let's jump in. Okay, we meet these two people. Who are they? We don't really know, but we know one's name is Cleopas, and the other we think very, it's likely, not certain, likely to be his wife. Um, these two have been followers of Jesus, but they are leaving Jerusalem on Sunday morning. They're traveling to a town called Emmaus, seven or eight miles away, and as they walk, they are debriefing just unimaginable trauma that they've experienced over the last week. Now, part of the trauma is that they, uh, they witnessed the, the execution of Jesus Christ, which is admitted, I mean, just traumatic, right? But you have to see that in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, um, they were experiencing an absolute cataclysmic collapse of their entire religious framework. First of all, they had been betrayed by the leaders of their Israelite religion. Uh, look at verse 20. Uh, so they're walking with Jesus. They don't recognize it's Jesus, which is part of the kind of the fun irony of the story. We'll get to, to their uh, uh, inability to recognize Jesus in a few minutes. But look at verse 20. They tell Jesus and they say, Jesus, our chief priests, well, no, sorry, they don't know they're talking to Jesus, but they say, our chief priests and our rulers delivered Jesus up to be condemned to death and they crucified him. Now, you need to let this sink in for a second. Which priests? Our priests, they said. Not those other guys. Our chief priests arranged his death. Why is that such a big deal? Well, consider it from their perspective. These priests that they're talking about here, they are the successors of Moses and Aaron. Over a thousand years of tradition is behind this leadership structure. And these were the leaders that they understood to be instituted by God. And therefore, they understood that these leaders, these chief priests, they were the ones that Israel was bound to trust and to obey and to support. You know, Israel's view of God was all bound up with Israel's leadership structure, the clergy, so to speak. And therefore, what does it mean? If the leaders are corrupt, what does it mean about God? Didn't he institute the whole system anyway? If the leaders are corrupt, does it mean God's corrupt? If the leaders have failed, does it mean that God has failed? If the leaders are a fraud, what does that mean about God? And maybe it means there isn't one after all. And all of this was just kind of a social control thing. Now, think about yourself for a minute and think about your friends. Can you identify at all with this? Um, one of the things that has uh, struck me, um, particularly moving back in the, into the United States, but it's not, it's not unique to the United States. It's, it's, more, it's more broad than that, but, but I think it's particularly acute here. Um, is that uh, American Christianity has typically had three big, there's been the big three, right? Uh, mainline Protestantism, Roman Catholicism, Evangelical Protestantism. The big three. Um, and it seems to me, and you can tell me later if you think I'm right, that, that there's just an acute sense of, 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 of a betrayal of leadership in all three. Uh, 
Um, and, and when I say that, by the way, as Anglicans, we partake of all of them. <laughs> so, um, oh dear. And for a lot of people, the scandal is so deep that walking away from the whole thing just feels like the, the most reasonable thing to do. Or walk away from one into another, but sometimes it's not as green as it might imagine it to be. Now, friends, this is what Cleopas and his wife are doing. They're walking away from Jerusalem, metaphorically and literally. And can you blame them? But the, but the pain is deeper. Why is the pain deeper? Well, when, you, um, when somebody confronts institutional scandal in, a, in, a, in an old you know, historic religion, Sometimes you just walk away from religion in general, but sometimes what you do is instead you join a renewal movement, right? Uh, something informal, uh, something organic, something authentic, something alternative. And that's what Cleopas and his wife had previously done. They had joined Jesus' team months, years before this, um, and Jesus was always on the margins, and it had the kind of excitement of this is something new, and this is you know, the resistance, or whatever it is. But then, look at verse 21. Speaking of Jesus, they said, and we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They had hoped. But they're not hoping anymore. Um, their hope had died on Friday, previously. And, and what I want you to see is just how, how deeply uh, religion had failed these people. Because the institutional leaders were murderers. And then they met Jesus sometime before this, and he gave all the right uh, signals to suggest that he was the Messiah, which, yes, finally, he's going to redeem this thing. And then he gets killed. And in their frame of thinking, dead messiahs are phony ones. And so the whole thing just reeks of failure for these people. And if you can't identify with this, how many of your friends, how many of our friends, just see Christianity as hopelessly compromised and therefore not even worth considering? And if that's where you are, um, Cleopas and his wife are your people. But it's also important to see that Jesus purposefully seeks out, spends an enormous bar, part of his first day um, seeking these people out and addressing this objection r right on the very first day that he's risen from the dead. So how does he re address it? Well, he does a, a very, very strange thing. He shows Cleopas and his wife something that they could not see otherwise. Go, go back to the story. So Cleopas and his wife they can't, this is part of what makes the story fun, intriguing, and challenging. They can't see what it is that is right in front of them, right? On the one hand, they don't recognize Jesus, but it's more than just that. They are grieving, they're processing their pain out loud. Then Jesus pops along, and again, it, 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 it's almost humorous, because Jesus pops along and says, what you talking about? And they're like, have you not been watching the news? And, and, and he says, oh, really? What happened? And they're like, oh, roll the eyes. And so they start talking to him about what had happened to him. But do you notice in their recounting of the story of Jesus, they tell 
all the main facts of Jesus' death and his resurrection. So they say, uh, first of all, he's a prophet, right? Um, he was a prophet, and then they say everybody agreed that he was a prophet, and then he was crucified, and then it, they say it's three days later, and this morning the women got up, and the women went to the tomb, and they came back, and they said that he's alive. Now, why am I saying this? Watch. They have all the information, all the essential information about Jesus, and they are looking at Jesus himself, and yet despite all the right information, and despite being face-to-face with Jesus, they can't see him. They can't see so to speak, what's right in front of their eyes. Why? What's going on? What's the block? Look at verse 25, Jesus' diagnosis. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now pause. Every time I come to that verse, I find myself kind of jarred. It's like, ow, Jesus, that's not nice. That's not, not great bedside manner. Um, why does Jesus rebuke them? Because they're not the bad guys, right? They're the victims. Why does Jesus rebuke them? Well, there's something important going on here. Keep that question in your mind and go to the first reading, the reading from Ezekiel. Um, Jesus, in, as he's walking uh, with them on the road to Emmaus, he, he begins to talk to them about all kinds of Bible passages, and we don't know which ones in particular he chose, but almost, it's a, a good argument is that something came from Ezekiel. Now, Ezekiel, a little bit of background here, Ezekiel lived hundreds of years before Jesus, and he was an Israelite prophet. And uh, in Ezekiel chapter 37, G, uh, God gives Ezekiel a vision, and it's a striking vision, it's a grim vision, it's a frightening vision, it's a vision of a valley filled up with human bones. Uh, they're, they're, they're dead people, but they've been dead long enough, and thoroughly enough, that they're clean. Bones, carnage, hopeless death, that's what he sees. And then God tells Ezekiel, he says, Ezekiel, Israel's religion, my people's religion, is as dead as these bones. Now, there's something shocking here, and the shocking thing is that Israel, you know, Israel's religion, certainly within the framework of the Bible, Israel's religion was the best religion that the world had ever seen, so to speak. I mean, what, what I mean is that Israel, Israel's religion had been um, uh, poured out or revealed by God in the story, which is to say they had all the right stories, they had all the right morals, they had all the right rituals, and yet despite all that, God looks at their outward religion and the whole apparatus of it, and he says, through Ezekiel, dry bones. Dead. Dead religion. So once again, why? What's, where's the failure? Well, we get the diagnosis from Ezekiel in the chapter beforehand, and it ends up, according to Ezekiel, that the problem is much deeper. It, it, the problem is right down deep in the human heart. The human heart, Ezekiel tells us, is like a stone or a bone. It is hard and it is dead. And in Ezekiel, it's the image of a heart, a fundamental center of our human person that is oriented to resist God and to resist God and to push him away even and sometimes particularly um, 
so to speak, leveraging the religious apparatus that's around us. We sort of insulate ourselves from God in part through religion, which sounds crazy, but if you spend a lot of time in religion, you know it can happen. Now, the pro but what, what this teaches us is that the problem with religion is actually deeper than religion itself. The problem is a human heart that pushes back and will not trust in God. Now, keep that in mind and go back to the road to Emmaus. Because Israel's leaders had murdered Jesus. Clearly, obviously, dry bones, heart wired to resist God rather than trust him. But Jesus, in this personal interaction with Cleopas and his wife, Jesus points them to their own hearts, slow of heart. And he shows them, as he opens up the Bible, that their hearts were dry bones as well, yeah, which, is, which is difficult because they'd walked with Jesus for years. They had all the right stories. They had all the right information. They had even heard about Jesus' resurrection that morning from witnesses who had gone to the tomb like Mary Magdalene and others, and their initial reaction is, I don't buy it. I'm not going to trust again. I'm not going to trust again. Now, part of what we have to point out here is that it is easy and important to see the dry bones in big institutional religion and particularly within, through the scandals that we see. It is harder, however, to see the dry bones resident in our own souls. And when you meet Jesus, he always deals with with both. Don't imagine that the leaders of Israel get off scot-free. Read uh, Acts chapter 2 and you'll see almost exactly, not exactly, but almost exactly the same conversation that happens with them, with some of the people who had been instigators of the death of Jesus from a leadership perspective. Peter speaks to them and he deals with the same issues. So just give it a few weeks from this moment and Jesus will deal with them as well. But right now he's focused on Cleopas and his wife. They couldn't see Jesus, in part because they had to see how dead their religion was without him, without his death and resurrection. In other words, you'll never see Jesus rightly until we see the dry bones in our own souls. Now, go back to Ezekiel, because not only does Ezekiel say, hey, look, there's dry bones, dead religion, but he also gives a glorious promise. And the promise, verse 12, is this. Behold, God says, I will open your graves, and I will raise you up from your graves, O my people. And then look at verse 14. I will put my Holy Spirit within you, and you shall live. Now, look at those verses, and I want you to, to, to see something. Do you see how the resurrection and giving the Holy Spirit are united. And the idea is this, dry bones don't make themselves alive, but God can do the impossible. And God promises that there is going to be this thing called the resurrection, where graves are opened, and, Ezekiel, and God says to Ezekiel, when you see resurrection from the grave, that's the moment that I'm going to impart the Holy Spirit. Now, Israel read this, and understandably, um, they thought that what would happen is they're all going to die, and then someday, probably at the end of the whole story, God is going to raise them all up, and then God will raise them up with new hearts that are, that are not stone but made of flesh, is the way Ezekiel describes it. 
But when you get to Jesus, what happens is he changes the order. So that in Jesus, God himself becomes Israel. And then Jesus dies, and Jesus himself becomes the dry bones of Israel. And then God, on that Sunday morning, opened up his grave and raised him up. And remember, according to Ezekiel, when the grave is opened, that's when the Holy Spirit can be given. Now, take all of this back to Jesus talking with Cleopas and his wife. Jesus says, verse 26, it's essential, it was part of the plan, that the Messiah would die and rise again. Why, we ask? Because the best human religion is dry bones. And every single human heart needs a new heart, a new, a new orientation of the soul. Every single human needs the Holy Spirit's inward transformation. We need to be transformed from the inward out. Corrupt leaders need new hearts, and respectable people like Cleopas and his wife need new hearts too. It doesn't mean they're there's an equality between their guilt or anything like that. It means that the fundamental thing that needs to be changed is the same down within the soul. And Jesus looks at Cleopas and his wife and says, I died and I rose to give you new spiritual life. So I ask the question again, why is it that Cleopas and his wife can't see Jesus? And the answer is in part, they had to see the depth of their own sin in order to also see the height of Jesus' grace. He's showing them both at the same time. He had, they had to see the dry bones of their own religion, even their being part of the renewal movement. And they also had to see their desperate need for that inward spiritual transformation. They had to see that the problem was bigger and deeper than they had previously thought. They had to see that corrupt religion originates with a hardened heart. And therefore, that the problem was even closer than they had anticipated. This is one of the reasons why, even when we, when we, um, when we give up on religion and, and, and we go to other institutions, we find that other institutions have a lot of the same scandals. Not exactly the same ones. Um, religion is probably particularly good at hypocrisy. But a lot of the other problems are found in other institutions as well. That doesn't excuse a thing. But it does say that we bring the problem with us wherever we go. And you see how, as Jesus is explaining all of this from the Bible, their hearts begin to burn. Verse 32, why are their hearts burning? That was the beginning of the Holy Spirit filling them with trust in Christ, love for Christ, love for the world. In that moment, as the Bible is being opened and the resurrected Jesus is beginning to explain to them the necessity of the cross and of the resurrection, that's when the Holy Spirit started to give them new hearts. That's when the Holy Spirit began to impart to them what Christians from this time onward began to call real religion. Not just outward. And that's the moment that they saw Jesus Christ. Now there's a lot more in this story. We're going to spend some more time with it over the next few weeks. The, the breaking of the bread and the, and the scriptures and a few other things. But let me end with just a few implications for how we address corrupt religion when we see it. Four things. First of all, when we see corruption within the church, on the one hand, we must not be surprised by it, and on the other hand, we must 
not tolerate it. So I say we must not be surprised by it. Um, I say that because the Bible is never surprised by corrupt religion. The Bible uh, anticipates it, predicts it, and diagnoses it more sharply than I, I have never found another piece of literature that diagnoses, that diagnoses corrupt religion as uh, insightfully and searingly as the Bible does. The Bible's not surprised by it. We shouldn't be surprised by it either. On the other hand, the Bible never tolerates it. Neither should we. Especially when you see corruption within the church, we must, friends, be courageous in calling the church to repentance. It's how we serve the church in part. Because if Jesus died, if he had to die to deal with the problem of sin, then that means that sin is horrendously serious. So we must not be surprised by it, but we must not tolerate it either. Secondly, when you see corruption within religion out there, we must reflexively first look in here, in our own souls. The reason I say that is it's very, it's very easy to allow obvious, flagrant evil out there to distract us from seeing the sin and the dry bones that still remain within our own hearts. And the reason that's so dangerous is that it can be the path to hypocrisy, all the while we're thinking we're the innocent ones and they're the bad guys, which is maybe true, but it, the first thing, the, ref, the reflex is saying, oh Lord Jesus, show me if any of that sin that I see out there is somehow resident in here and show me how I can begin the renewal of the church with my own repentance. Show me here. We start there, as Jesus says, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you'll actually be useful in helping the other people with the speck of dust that's in their eye. We start with ourselves first. And then thirdly, as we're seeking the, uh, our own repentance, we must rely on Christ alone for the final renewal. Because only Jesus Christ can raise the dead. Only Jesus Christ can change my heart. Only Jesus Christ can renew the church. Only Jesus Christ can renew this world. And therefore, if we are going to uh, resist corrupt religion and seek the renewal of Christianity and of our church, then it must begin in continuous prayer. It must begin in a continuous prayer for a deeper work of the Holy Spirit within us. And one of the things that that means is that we must pray not only for safety and for a good job and, and things like that. Pray for those things. Go for it. But pray bigger prayers. Pray for an ever-increasing intimacy with Jesus Christ. There's a uh, St. Simeon, the new theologian, the new theologian, the Eastern saint, um, used to say, uh, acquire inward peace and thousands around you will find their salvation. Inward peace doesn't mean like serenity. It means acquire inward uh, reconciliation with God and intimacy with God. And his point is that will end up having enormous impact in people around you. So don't be surprised, but don't tolerate it. On the other hand, always look in your own heart for the root causes of any corruption that you see outside you. And then thirdly, 
Rely on Christ alone for the renewal. And finally, lastly, Emmanuel, remember that our mission is to describe the beauty of Jesus Christ specifically and not be a representative of religion generally. What do I mean by that? Well, Cleopas and his wife, they run back to Jerusalem and they burst into the doors with the other disciples and they say, he is risen. They don't say, hey, religion is really good for society. We should... They don't say, it's going to give great morals for your kids. So they don't say, spirituality can really help you at work. What they say is Jesus Christ, very specifically, is risen. Their message is laser-focused on Jesus. And they told people about Jesus, and that's what the early church does, and down through the history of the church, whenever the church is alive and at its best, it is always laser-focused on describing the beauty of Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is that he is the only one who can change the human heart and give real spiritual life. And that's what we need, friends. Is that not what we need? Do we have something better? But on the other hand, when Jesus Christ is transforming you from the inside out and transforming others through you, and when you see people's lives transformed not just by outward conformity but by inward renewal, friends, you will see something more beautiful than you have seen anywhere else because you will see the first taste of the kingdom of God and of the heavens and the new earth. And that is what we pursue. Let's pray. Almighty Father, the wounds of counterfeit religion run deeper than we can possibly imagine, both in our own lives and in the lives of countless others. Father, in your mercy and in your compassion, comfort the broken and the disillusioned. And will you begin in us that inward work of renewal, which is the real thing to which everything else is a mere shadow? Will you impart the reality that you gave to Cleopas and his wife? Will you do that in us? Will you do it now? Do not wait. And then, O oh Lord, will you do it through us? Will you grant us to watch many people who right now have good reasons to run away from the whole religion thing? Will you grant us to see them meet you and be made new? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com slash give.